Martin Luther once said, I've held many things in my hands and I've lost them all. But whatever I have placed in God's hands, that I still possess. One of the reasons so many people, including Christians, struggle with things like anxiety and fear and hopelessness and doubt and uncertainty and risk and an unknown future, it's because we're trying to hold in our hands what only God can handle. We're trying to solve problems only God can solve, answer questions only God can answer, go places where only God can go, and of course see into a future that only God can see. We're trying to maintain control of things that we never had control of to begin with. In, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, the apostle Paul wrote, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, Ephesians 4, 6. And to the Colossians, he wrote about Jesus Christ saying, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Look, if those statements are true, if all things were created by him and through him, and if he is in fact before all things, and if in him everything, literally everything, is being held together, then only Jesus Christ is worthy, able to address every need in our lives. He is our answer to every question, our solution to every problem. He is our fulfillment of every promise, our supply for every lack. He's our resolution to every impasse, our confidence for every uncertainty, our courage in the face of every fear. He is our assurance in the shadow of every doubt, our peace in the middle of every storm, and our hope in the midst of every dire circumstance that we will ever face in this life. Because in short, God is in control. And because he loves us the way that he does, he's taking all of the good and all of the bad and all of the victories and all of the defeats and all of the successes and all of the failures. And he's working all of it together for your good. Again, Paul said, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. He didn't say all good things, all the easy things, all the things we like. All the things we want. No, he just said all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. You understand, God couldn't do that. God couldn't work all things together for our good if he wasn't in control of all things. In the words of R.C. Sproul, if God is not sovereign, then God is not God. You see, God is in control. And the quicker you can accept that and embrace that truth in your own life, the quicker your perspective changes toward all of the things that you go through, both the good and the bad. Because if God is in control, then you don't have to be. I'm telling you, there's nothing more freeing in this world than letting go of all the things we so desperately try in this life to control, things that were never our burdens to carry in the first place. Now look, at the same time, there are deeply important things 
critical things, in fact, that you must do that have a direct bearing on the heart of Christ and his plan for your life. And we're gonna see that today as we continue our sermon series, working our way through the book of Revelation as John continues to share his vision of what he sees happening in the throne room of heaven. And it is profoundly insightful to see Jesus doing what only Jesus can Listen, while at the same time witnessing a couple of very specific activities by believers around the world, activities that are playing a critical role in the implementation of God's plan for this world in general, and of course, our lives in particular, which is wonderful, as we'll see. But listen, the sobering reality is those same activities by God's people that touch the heart of Christ the most, that that actually play a critical role in his plan being implemented in this world and in our lives, those are the activities that we tend to give attention to the least. Why? Because we're too busy trying to control outcomes that are beyond our control. We're too busy trying to handle things in our lives that only Jesus is worthy or able to handle. And in the process, we neglect the things we can and should be doing instead. The point is this. If we're going to have a meaningful effect on God's plan unfolding in this world, and of course we want to, whether we admit it or not, that's why we talk as much as we do about the political climate in our country and wars going on around the world and pandemics and vaccines and economic turmoil and how all those things affect us in our future and even these events that we read about in Revelation because we naturally see those things as signs of the times. Whether you believe we're living in the last days or not, we want to have a voice in all of that, as we should. We want our voices to be heard. We want to have a meaningful effect on how these events unfold in our country and in our society and in our own lives. But listen, if we're actually going to have a meaningful effect on God's plan unfolding in this world, then we have to learn to let Jesus handle the part of the plan that only Jesus can, while at the same time learning to focus on what actually touches the heart of Christ, the part that we do. Here's a hint. It's not our political involvement or the amount of religious influence we exercise over our culture, or how many followers we have on social media, or how much money we amass, or anything else in this world that this world considers indicators of power and influence. Because look, at the end of the day, more specifically at the end of this age, none of those things will remain. What matters to Jesus will. Why? Because he's in control which is gonna become clear as we work through this next chapter. So let's pick the story up right where we left off last time at Revelation chapter five. We'll begin by reading the first 10 verses. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. 
And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. If you were slain, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. As we saw last time, John, while exiled on the island of Patmos, is given a vision of the throne room of heaven, where God the Father is sitting on his throne, and John couldn't even describe him. He could only describe the glory emanating from the throne. And he's surrounded by a host of divine beings and the heads of the New Testament churches and the Old Testament tribes of Israel, the 24 elders, all focused on and worshiping him around the clock. And as the scene continues here, John notices something in the right hand of the Father, a scroll with writing on the inside and the out. It's very similar to the scroll given to Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapters two and three, also similar to those in Daniel 12, four, uh, Isaiah 29, 11 and 12, and Jeremiah 36, one through 25. And interestingly, uh, ancient scrolls typically only had writing on one side of them, generally the front, because they were made out of either papyrus or vellum, and so the fibers were laid out horizontally to make writing on it easier, while on the back, the fibers were laid in these irregular patterns to make the scrolls stronger. But that also meant it was really hard to write on the back of a scroll. So generally they didn't, unless in very rare occasions what needed to be recorded was so extensive and comprehensive and of such great importance that it had to be included in the same scroll even when there wasn't room on the front to write it all down. And in those very rare cases, when they ran out of space on the front, they would continue writing on the back. That's the case here, as John describes. There's writing on both sides of the scroll. It's certainly symbolic of the breadth and weight and importance of this particular scroll, which contains God's purposes for history, his plan for this world. It doesn't get much more important than that, right? There are specific judgments that come from opening the scroll, which we'll get to in the next few chapters, but in the broadest sense here, this scroll represents God's plan of judgment and redemption, his sovereign will being accomplished throughout the earth at the end of days, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but of course has yet to be completed. And so this scene is about as heavy as it gets. In fact, John finds the contents of the book to be bitter, he says in Revelation chapter 10. This is a scroll of unparalleled significance filled to overflowing and sealed with seven seals to ensure the secrecy of its decrees until it is opened, containing the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. And in that moment of unparalleled importance, there appears on the scene a mighty angel, it was probably Gabriel, who calls for someone who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. It's a loud voice, John says, that is needed because the challenge is sent out to the far reaches of creation. In fact, we'll meet this angelic herald again in chapter 10, verse one, where he stands along the sea and shouts as a lion roaring. And then again in chapter 18, verse 21, where he casts a boulder the size of a large millstone, John says, into the sea, symbolic of the overthrow of Roman power. And because of the importance of the contents of this particular scroll, once again, the voice of a mighty angel is required to call out 
for someone, anyone, who's worthy to perform the sacred and supreme service of bringing history to its foreordained consummation. And so the challenge has gone out and all those dwelling throughout the entire creation hear it and yet no one is able to accept it. Silence. And as the moment wanes, hope gradually disappears. No one is found able to open the book or look into its contents as neither the elders around the throne nor the living creatures nor anyone else in heaven on earth or under the earth, as John says, had sufficient authority to unveil and implement God's secret agenda for this world. And in that moment, the desperation of even the possibility of God's plan not being carried out in the lives of his people, it's more than John can bear, and he begins to weep loudly until one of the elders tells John to stop because the lion of the tribe of Judah is there and he's triumphed over sin and death and is therefore worthy, qualified, able to open the scroll. And turning to see, John finds not a lion, but a lamb bearing the obvious marks of slaughter, a lamb with seven horns that represent his perfect power and seven eyes of unlimited wisdom and insight. It's Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And in that moment, the worship of God for his role in creation gives way to the worship of the lamb for his work of redemption. In the words of Robert Mounts, With the handing of the scroll to the Lamb, we enter into one of the greatest scenes of universal adoration anywhere recorded. We'll come back to that in a few moments. Because the first point that needs to be made here is the fact that in all of creation, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, there is only one who can read the scroll, who can open the contents of the seven seals, only one who can superintend end time events in this world. There's only one who can execute God's plan for this world, and by the way, for your life. It's the one who knit you together in your mother's womb, Psalm 139, 13, the one who was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, John 1, 2. He's the one who is the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. It's Jesus Christ, the only one who was before all things, is over all things, and who controls the end of all things, okay, only Jesus can finish what he started. You understand, look, when we talk about end time events, when we talk about the end times, you know we're not waiting for the Antichrist to appear, right? We're not waiting for the mark of the beast to show up on the scene, we're not waiting for the enemy. We're not waiting for world leaders to fulfill prophecies. We're not waiting for dates and times. We're not waiting for world events to unfold. No, we're waiting for Jesus Christ. Why? Because only Jesus can finish what he started. Right? He's the only one who's worthy, able to finish what he started in this world, which, which also means Jesus is the only one who can finish what he started in your life. Now listen, God has a plan for your life. 
a plan that he authored for you long before you were ever born, and every day, every moment, every breath you take factors into that plan, which means no matter how miserable or how random or how seemingly insignificant the direction of your life may feel to you at any given time, in every single one of those days, even the miserable, random, insignificant, forgettable days, God is leading you. He's always leading you. And listen, where God leads you is exactly where he wants you. And that matters because you may feel like you're wandering right now, like your life has no real direction, no significant purpose, no light at the end of the tunnel you're in. And as long as it has seemed to be that way, you still don't feel one day closer to the life you're longing for. I'm telling you, as far as God's design for your life, uh, as you may feel right now, you are exactly where God wants you to be because you didn't get to where you are by chance. In fact, there's no such thing as chance in God's kingdom. There's only him, his people, and his unfailing plan for your life. Which means you got to where you are because God's sovereign plan for your life has led you there. And as much as you, you can't see it from where you're standing now, written in his book, according to David, is every single one of your days, including the ones that are coming, where you're walking in the fulfillment of his ultimate plan and purpose for your life. By the way, just because God is sovereign doesn't mean you have no part to play in God's plan for your life and for this world coming to fruition. You certainly do, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But listen, his plan for your life is an unfailing plan. It cannot be overcome by the plans of the enemy or the plans of this world or even the mistakes you make along the way. You understand your mistakes cannot overcome God's plan for your life. I don't care how bad you feel like you've screwed things up, your mistakes cannot overcome God's plan for your life and neither can a political party or economic turmoil or wars or rumors of wars or pandemics or other people or the enemy of our souls. No, only Jesus can finish what he started in your life. Now, how all of that plays out in your life and the timing of it all, well that is certainly affected by your response to his leading and certainly there are consequences for the choices we make, right? For disobedience to God's word, to uh, unfaithfulness and unforgiveness and all the things that we carry around in this life that we were never meant to carry. Yet there's one thing, one activity that has a greater effect than all others when it comes to the timing of God's plan being carried out in your life and in this world. One thing you can do more than any other, that is prayer. Notice what John sees in verse eight. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. The saints are you and me. Our prayers are there. He's getting ready to start breaking the seals, as we'll see in the coming chapters. What brings that about? What part do we have to play? Notice what he's not holding, what they're not holding. They're not holding our talents. They're not holding our hard work. They're not holding our commitment, our clever ideas, our sinless lives, our perfect voting record, the size of our bank accounts, our popularity, our influence, our cultural relevance. Neither were they holding our mistakes, 
our doubts, our fears, our anxiety, our faithlessness or faults. No, the only part of your life and my life that even makes it into this profound scene, the only influence we have to offer in the breaking of the seals and the consummation of God's plan for this world and for your life is our prayers. That's it. Which, by the way, this is nothing new. This was commonly understood in Hebrew culture at the time. The idea that angels presented the prayers of God's people before him is nothing new. It's all throughout ancient Jewish writings. In the book of Tobias 12:15, an angel says, I'm Raphael, one of the seven holy angels who present the prayers of the saints and who go in and out before the glory of the Holy One. In 3 Baruch 11, it's Michael the archangel who descends to the fifth heaven to receive the prayers of people. And here in Revelation 5, it's the 24 elders performing the same exact function. And by the way, there are scholars who believe that the prayer that's being presented to God in this scene was, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6.10, which makes a lot of sense when you consider the fact that not only did Jesus teach us to pray that very prayer, but it's why John said this is the confidence we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us, and whatever we ask, we know we have the requests we've asked of him, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Can you see how profoundly powerful, how much more profoundly powerful prayer is than every other effort in this life? There is nothing more powerful you could ever do. So consider this. What would our lives look like? What would our church look like? What would our community look like if we spent as much time praying every day as we do on social media every day? Can you imagine how much power we would wield, the influence we would have in people's lives? How much more evident would God work in our lives if we talk to him about his will for our lives as much as we argue with other people about politics and any other number of things in this country? I mean, what would it be like if we prayed more than we worried? If we spent more time petitioning God for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven than we do trying to solve all of our problems on our own? Because look, as hard as you may ever try, you can't control every outcome in your life. In fact, you can't control most outcomes in your life. So instead of trying to control what you have no control over, why don't you spend your time talking to the only one who can? Because only Jesus can finish what he started in this world and in your life. And I'm telling you, prayer is the key. It's our direct connection to the only one who's worthy to open the scroll and act on your behalf. Samuel Chadwick once said, prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power, it brings fire, it brings rain, it brings life, it brings God. Let's finish the story for today, verse 11 to the end of the chapter. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. 
So the heavenly choir expands as the adoration and worship of the Lamb moves out into ever-widening circles. And John hears the roar of the adulation as it rises to heaven. The adoration of the entire created world as the innumerable host of angels lift their voices along with every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, lifting their voices in a great doxology of praise, proclaiming Jesus alone worthy of power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. Everything that we long for, by the way, in this life. Power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing. All attributes ascribed to Jesus alone. Not just here, throughout the New Testament, power and wisdom in 1 Corinthians 1.24, wealth in 2 Corinthians 8.9 and Ephesians 3.8, strength in Luke 11.22, honor in Philippians 2.11, glory in John 1.14 and praise in Romans 15.29. All the things that we long for in this life, we can only get from the source, Jesus Christ. Again, Robert Mount said, chapter five has revealed a central truth that governs the entire book of Revelation. By a sacrificial death, the lamb has taken control of the course of history and guaranteed its future. He alone was worthy to break the seals and open the scroll of destiny. A vivid portrayal of the one who has won the crucial battle against sin supplies the confidence that in troubled times to come, there remains a hope that is steadfast and sure. Okay, every desire at least every righteous desire in your life comes from a single source. Our only hope, the only one who can provide for every need and desire, Jesus Christ alone. And so he's not only ultimately in control of every outcome in your life, but he's the only one who possesses the resources that you need to accomplish what you must to achieve those outcomes. You see, only Jesus can finish what he started in your life and only Jesus can give you what you need to get there because he's the source of all good things. James, the brother of Jesus, says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. James 1.17, it's not from this world. It's not from other people. It's not from whatever you can achieve apart from Christ. The truth is, look, we rely far too much on the systems of this world to provide what we think we need in this life and far too little on the only one who can provide what we need. You understand, I, uh, I participate in the political process in this country, as we all should. It's very important. I'm very involved, but you, you understand it's not the next election or the one after that or the one after that that's going to save us. I work really hard to provide for my family and this church, but it's not material wealth that ultimately provides what we need the most. I believe in the counsel of many and planning for the future, being prepared for the days ahead as much as anyone, but it's not the wisdom of man that will guide us through troubled times to come. No, it's when we run to the source of every good thing we find that we need, everything that is available only in him. And, and what is so noticeable about that in this particular scene where all these good things are ascribed to Jesus, is there isn't a single person there asking for a single one of those things. What are they doing? They're worshiping Jesus, the one who freely gives all of those things as we need them. It's why after Jesus teaching us to pray in Matthew 6, that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, Jesus says this, do not be anxious, saying what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear for the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And what happens when you seek his kingdom first and his righteousness? All these things will be added to you, Matthew 6, 31 through 33. And what do we see here? Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea, which includes you and me, doing in this vision given to John. What do we see them doing? They're seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, knowing that every good thing ascribed to him, namely power, wealth, wisdom, might, honor, glory, and blessing, everything we long for and everything we're going to need when that scroll gets opened up as we're going to see, all of it is found in him when we seek him first. Not when we seek what he can do for us first. It all boils down to worship. Seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then, then everything we need, he says, will be added to us. So let me just ask you. How often when you really need something, when your, your situation is desperate, when the light of hope seems dim and your circumstance is dire, how often before you pray and ask God to meet that need, how often do you instead simply worship him and his righteousness first? If, if you're honest about the time you spend in prayer, how much of that time is spent in worship compared to the amount of time you spend asking him to meet your needs? I think it's telling that when Jesus teaches us to pray in Matthew 6, the Lord's prayer begins with worship. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It's seeking him first in worship. And then he continues, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's seeking his righteousness. And then after worshiping him and after seeking him and his righteousness first, then he says, give us this day our daily bread. I follow the Lord's Prayer and my own prayer time every day. I follow that pattern. And interestingly, the King James Version of this prayer not only begins with worship, but it ends with worship as well. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Somewhere along the line, we've lost the understanding that the primary way to get what you want, what you desire, what you need from God is by worshiping him and seeking his righteousness first. In fact, I'll just tell you something. I honestly believe this. Seriously, I believe when we all get to heaven, we're going to be shocked at how many needs in our lives were provided for when we were worshiping him without even knowing it. Honestly, when we gather and worship God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, I really believe that people in this room who may not even know they're sick are being healed. I believe that that needs we don't even know we have yet are being met. Why? Because we're seeking Jesus and his righteousness first, and that's what he wants, just as we see here in John's vision of what is happening in heaven. And it's supposed to happen here on earth just as it is in heaven. Yet for most of us, when we have a need, especially a dire need in our lives, I think we beg and plead God to meet those needs without ever considering the fact that he can and will most often meet those needs before we ever ask him if we just worship him first and seek his righteousness first. You know why? Because that's what touches the heart of Christ. Because you're seeking relationship with him before you ask for benevolence from him. Okay, worship is the key to getting what you want from God. You understand your job can't provide it. Your spouse can't provide it. Your family can't provide it. Your friends can't provide it. Your income can't provide it. Your church can't provide it. Religion can't provide it. Nothing in this world, not even in the least, can provide for you what you need the most. 
See, because the greatest need of every human soul is to be in relationship with the God who created them. That's our greatest need. No matter how far you look, how hard you try to fulfill that need in any other person or place or thing, there's still only one place we will ever truly find what you need more than anything else, and that's only in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And of course, there's a room full of professing Christians. I think we probably all agree with that conceptually. I'm just not sure we've accepted it practically in how we go about living our daily lives because honestly, I'm not sure we fully believe it ourselves. I think deep down, if we're completely honest with ourselves, we wonder sometimes if Jesus truly is all that we need. So we pad our lives with lots of other things to maybe help Jesus out when it comes to our needs being met. I think we struggle at times in trusting him with every aspect of our lives, so we try to help him out by taking matters into our own hands, just to be sure. Because we're so fearful of what might happen to us if we really let him have everything, so we hold on to a lot more than we should to try and ensure that we don't come up empty. Remember what Luther said? I've held many things in my hands, and I've lost them all, but whatever I've placed in God's hands, that I still possess. See, at the end of the day, Only Jesus can finish what he started in your life and only he can provide what you need to get there. It's not your striving, it's not your giftings, it's not your successes that will get you there. It's also not your failures or your mistakes or your faults that will keep you from getting there either. It all comes down to Jesus, the only one who can complete the work he began in your life when he was knitting you together in your mother's womb. Your only contribution in all of that is to trust him to do what he's promised that he will do and then express that trust, that faith in him, in prayer and worship. Everything else is up to him. Let's pray.